So as we continue this uh, week two of an eight-week series going through the four chapters of this book, again, I just want to recall where we are at geographically. I circled on the left side Colossa in yellow, and Colossa was once a bustling wool, fig, and olive industry area. Uh, but as we relate in Chicago, right, the suburban sprawl that moves west and is still moving west, in Colossa, people moved west. You can see that on the right side to Hierapolis and Laodicea, down valley. And then in 60 AD, Colossa had like an earthquake. And so this once bustling had Ben Town was now waning and declining. And so the image of Colossa might look something like this in our minds. Radiator Springs. Right? By the time that Lightning McQueen goes to Radiator Springs... It's kind of a run-down dump. Once a major center on Route 66, that evil interstate came in, and no one stopped in Radiator Springs anymore, and the town is in decay. It's the same thing with Colossa. In fact, last century, biblical scholar J.B. Lightfoot said this, without a doubt, Colossa was the least important church to which any of Paul's letters were addressed. But Epaphras, whose hometown was Colossa, heard Paul preach the gospel just west in Ephesus, and, and then Epaphras came back to his hometown, small and dumpy as it was, and Epaphras preached the gospel in Colossa. And what happens when the gospel is preached? A church was birthed. But this new little church in Podunk backwater Colossa when God plants a church, what does Satan do? He attacks. False teachers came into this small little church and began attacking it. And so Epaphras got word back to Paul. And Paul wrote them a letter that we still have with us today. The book of Colossians. And that Paul would write a letter to this little church shows that in Jesus Christ, not only is there neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, in Jesus Christ, there is also no small, insignificant church. But they all matter to God. 
And so let's just continue to look at what Paul writes to this small little church under spiritual attack. And what we're especially going to focus on in these next verses of chapter 1, Paul is going to hold before this small but not insignificant church the greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The word in Greek there for image is icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in the heavens and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What does Paul hold before this little congregation first? He holds before them the greatness of Jesus Christ in all of creation. This past December, NASA launched a new telescope into space. Hubble Telescope is now more than 30 years old. And though it has sent some amazing pictures back to us, technology has changed a lot in 30 years. So this past December, they now have a new telescope in space, James Webb Telescope. In our terminology, it's much more high def. And you can go to NASA, and these pictures have just been released to the public recently. This is what the new James Webb Telescope is sending back. That's the Southern Ring Nebula. Or the SAMCS0723. Or this is Stefan's Quintet. This last one's my favorite. This is the Carina Nebula. Where did all of this come from? Paul says, by him, Jesus. All things were created in the heavens and on the earth. Reminds me of Psalm 19, verse 1, which says, The heavens, space, declares the glory of God. The verb there for declare in Hebrew is a present, meaning it is ongoing, it is continual. The heavens continue to declare the glory of God. The greatness of Jesus Christ. And I can't wait as the James Webb continues to send us more high-def resolution pictures back of the cosmos because God has nothing to hide. But rather, I think God is going to show us even more and say, just look at the greatness of your God. But Jesus didn't just create all the visible things that we see. Notice in the next part of 16, Jesus even created the invisible things that we don't see. He says thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What Paul is talking about here are four classes of angels. 
Now, we don't have enough information in our text or in the rest of Scripture to try to rank these angelic beings or establish any kind of a dominion or hierarchy. But what Paul is emphasizing is that even the whole angelic realm exists because Jesus Christ created it. And even though Satan led a vast rebellion against God and led many of the angels to sin who are now holy, unholy and, and working demise, even against their will, they still submit to the sovereignty of their creator, Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't just create everything visible and invisible in all creation and then sort of kick his feet up on a recliner on heaven's throne. But notice it says that Jesus continues to hold all things together. He's as much involved today as he was the day he spoke it all into existence. Your life, my life, everything in the world today in the universe, he is still in his sovereignty holding all things together. That's the greatness <laughs> of Jesus Christ in creation. But the greatness of Jesus goes far beyond creation. Paul continues now in verse 18. He says, Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is the firstborn of the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Here he now directs our attention to the greatness of Jesus in the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It is no one in this room. It is no human being on all of planet earth. Jesus is our head. And because Jesus is the head of the church, it means that we are under his guidance. He is in charge. Everything else in all of creation, he is working and piloting for the good of his church. And because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead ones, it means that as our head, Jesus goes first. But if Jesus was the firstborn of all the dead people, all believers in Jesus Christ are going to follow. And there is going to be a day when we will all flee out of our graves too. Because Jesus is our head. Now Paul is crescendoing and it comes to its peak in verse 20 where he continues and through him Jesus to reconcile all things to himself for he has made peace 
through the blood of his cross. Whether the things on earth or the things in the heavens. The greatness of Jesus Christ is ultimately on display right here. That through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have perfect peace with our holy God. And he enables peace with one another. But Paul doesn't mince words of how serious our dilemma was. Notice in verse 21, he reminds us of the people that we were. The words he uses are very vivid. He says, by our nature, we were all born into this world, alienated from God. Means we were completely separated from him spiritually because of our sin. He says we were hostile in mind to God. That we were at enmity with his word and ways. And we were against his will. And if we are alienated and hostile in our thinking, then of course our lives are going to be filled with what? Evil deeds before God. But notice again, that's the people we were. Because we have a Savior, a Jesus, who in his greatness has made complete peace by the blood of his cross. And now look how Paul describes the people that we are. He uses the word holy. You are holy to your God. You are unblemished. It means you are free from every spot and stain of sin. The same word unblemished is used of Jesus as our sacrificial lamb. He was unblemished. And now that's true of you and me. And we are blameless. No fault. No guilt. Completely clean record in the sight of our God. That's the greatness of Jesus Christ and the transformational power for every human right there. Paul now concludes this section of chapter 1 with a conditional sentence. So we have to keep reading. We are holy, unblemished, blameless in God's sight if Indeed, we remain in the faith, being founded and established, not shifting from the hope of this gospel which we have heard. Reminds me of a laboratory study that was done a few years ago in 2010. This experiment was conducted in a $40 million research lab in South Carolina. And under the roof of this massive lab, they constructed two homes. 
Each home was 1,300 square feet. The first one was constructed by conventional methods. The second home had straps securing the entire structure, including the roof, down to its foundation. And then they had huge, giant fans that they would turn on. And these fans would simulate a Category 3 hurricane with 110-mile-an-hour sustained winds. And once these loud, big fans were just blowing like crazy, after 10 minutes, the conventional house shook and just collapsed. The second house, in which the entire structure had been tethered to its foundation, had only minor cosmetic damage. The two words that Paul uses in verse 23, founded and steadfast, are actually construction metaphors. They are used for houses that are secure and steadfast because they have been founded on a solid foundation. So Paul's sense in verse 23 isn't, if you remain in the faith, but I'm not sure you will. I don't know. But Paul's sense is, if you indeed remain in the faith, and I'm sure that you will. Because you have already been founded and established steadfast in the greatness of Jesus Christ. And with our focus always on the greatness of Jesus Christ. No matter what kind of winds are beating against the church today in our culture. We will stand, and we will not shift from the hope of this gospel, which we have heard, because we've already been founded, established in the greatness of Jesus Christ. Amen.